Hebrews 1, 1 through 9. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is the word of God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this church family, and we're so thankful for you, our Father in heaven who loves us, and the great gift of your Son that you have given to us that we are celebrating at this Christmas season. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word that helps us to understand who you are, helps us to understand the depths of your love for us, and we pray as we Explore your word this morning a little bit more deeply in Hebrews chapter 1. That you would speak to us, that you would minister to us, and that you would reveal to us in profound ways how great your love for us truly is. And Lord, I pray that all of our hearts would be captured by your love and that we would find ourselves desiring to love you back and to worship you and to serve you with all that we are. So God, please speak to us now, minister to us, and instruct us in your holy word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning is the second out of three Advent teachings that we're doing in this church, Advent being the season of expectation for the arrival of Christ at Christmas. So this is the second out of three teachings that we're doing. And in our Advent teachings, we're going over the three offices of Christ, the office of prophet, priest, and king. C.C. Crawford wrote this, as a prophet, he teaches us. As a priest, he intercedes for us. As a king, he rules us. And that's what we're covering this Advent season, is these offices of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Last week we discussed Jesus as our great prophet of God. In a couple of nights on Christmas Eve, we're going to consider together Christ as the king of God's people, but today we're going to deal with Christ as the priest of God. Now after the birth of Christ, the three wise men from the east came and each of them were bearing gifts. Now the first gift is pretty straightforward. It was gold, which points to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, a king. But from there, it gets a bit fuzzy for most of us. I saw this cartoon online, and it captures this pretty well. You can see it on the screen here. So we've picked up the gold and the myrrh, but what on earth is that? Most of us 
get a little bit confused on the other gifts that were brought. It's gold, it's frankincense, and it's myrrh. Now, frankincense is significant because frankincense was used by the priests in the temple in the worship of God. And so as that gift was being offered to the baby Jesus, it was indicating that this child was going to grow up before the Lord as a priest of God. And that's what we're going to explore together this morning. To do that, we need to begin by asking ourselves the question, what is a priest? Uh, In our day and age, the role of a priest, the function of a priest is largely lost on our society, at least as a priest functioned in the Old Testament. Um, If you don't come from a church background, um, you probably have very vague references of what a priest is. Um, If you come from a Protestant background, which I assume many of us in this room do as Protestants, uh, most Protestant denominations do not have priests. And even if you come from a Catholic or an Orthodox background, uh, the concept of a priest in those churches is markedly different from the priests in the Old Testament and the office of a priest that Christ himself was coming into at the incarnation. So what is a priest? Well, to simplify, I want to compare and contrast the office of a priest with the office of a prophet, which we talked about together last week. So last week we talked about a prophet, and we learned that a prophet is a messenger. You see that on the left up there. A prophet is a messenger, And what a prophet did is they represented God to the people. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we kind of defined a prophet as the mouthpiece of God. This was a person anointed among God's people to give teaching and instruction and direct revelation from God to his people. He was God's messenger. Now, a priest is not so much a messenger as much as he is a mediator. A mediator. What that means is that in contrast to a prophet, a priest represents the people before God. The priest becomes this mediator between God and his people. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1, it's explained for us this way, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So do you see what he's saying there? When a priest was chosen, they were chosen to act on behalf of the people in relation to God. He uh, represented the people before God. Now in the Old Testament, the high priest was the ultimate mediator, if you want to put it that way, between the people of God and God himself. There were many priests, but the high priest was that kind of ultimate uh, mediator between God's people and God himself. And the high priest, more than anybody else in Israel, stood as the people's representative before God and offered the sacrifices that brought God's pardon for people's sins. The chief example of this is the Day of Atonement, which we read about in Leviticus chapter 16. As Israel's mediator, the high priest, on this special appointed day every year, would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And on this one day a year, he would actually take blood, he would take a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, which was the holiest place of the temple, where nobody could go because of God's presence being there, but he was allowed to go on this one day a year 
as the mediator between God's people and God himself and offer a sacrifice there for the sins of God's people. The mediating work of the priests was done through elaborate ceremonies that really cost the people something. People would have to bring their prize animals to be sacrificed. And this was in a largely agrarian society where animals were your, uh, your means of providing for yourself. And God was saying, I want the best of them. Those are going to be brought and be sacrificed. And as that happened, the sins of the people would be transferred to those animals. And then through the shedding of their blood, the sins of the people could be covered. And so, through these Old Testament sacrifices, God was teaching his people two primary things. First, God was teaching his people about the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Sin is not a trivial thing. Sin is not just a minor infraction like a parking citation or something. Sin is serious, so serious, in fact, that the Hebrew people would have to take, again, their prized animals on a regular basis and have those animals slaughtered and their blood applied as a way of temporarily covering their sins. Sin is a massive problem. Sin is responsible for, listen carefully, sin is responsible for everything that is wrong and everything that is broken in the universe. All of that can be traced back to sin. The day that our first parents, Adam and Eve, transgressed the law of God in the Garden of Eden, all of the cosmos were set at odds with itself, and everything became distorted and broken. Sin is responsible for all of the conflict in the world that we see today, all of the violence, all of the horrendous acts that are happening, every natural disaster All of these things are in our world because of sin. And God had to get those truths into the hearts and minds of his people. And church, God still needs to get those truths into the hearts and minds of his people. Because until we understand how destructive and devastating our sin is, we're never going to understand our need for a savior. So through these sacrifices, God is saying to his people, sin is is serious. But that's not all. Through these sacrifices, God was teaching his people something else. He was teaching his people about grace. God was showing his people that, listen, even though your sin is serious, I'm giving you provisions to experience forgiveness, to experience mercy, to experience my pardon. Now, the author of Hebrews points us to Jesus' role as our high priest when he writes of Jesus in verse 3 of chapter 1. He writes of Jesus making purification for sins. That word purification speaks to the, the aspect of how Christ cleanses us from our sins. The picture would be your sin being red like scarlet and Christ making it white like snow. Jesus cleanses us from our sins and that points to his work as our high priest So we're going to consider this morning in what ways Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Remember, I said that the high priest was the ultimate mediator in Israel. Well, Jesus is the high priest of all high priests. He's the ultimate high priest. Well, in what ways is that true? First, if you're a note taker, you can make this point number one. He was sinless 
and they were sinful. He was sinless, and they were sinful. Now, I mentioned the Day of Atonement, the most significant day on the Jewish calendar. And that was the day where, as I said, the high priest on that one day alone would enter into the holiest place in the temple and make an offering for the people's sins. Well, on that day, what you need to know is that the high priest, before he ever went into the holy place in the temple, he would first take a bull and he would sacrifice that bull as an offering for his own sins and the sins of his family. So, of course, what that's communicating is that he himself is sinful. He has no right to go in as a mediator for the rest of God's people until his own sin has first been dealt with through a sacrifice. So, although the high priest was a mediator for the people, the high priest was an imperfect one. Jesus, on the other hand, had no need of dealing with his own sin because he had none. Jesus is the only truly righteous priest to ever intercede on our behalf. Hebrews 4.15 puts it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, we read, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The sinfulness of every other priest, even every other high priest, meant that their work as a mediator was an imperfect work. And they had restricted access to the Father. Again, they could only go into the Holy of Holies once per year. If they were to go in on any other day, they, like any other Israelite, would be struck dead. Restricted access, an imperfect mediator. But family, listen, Jesus was our perfect mediator and Jesus has unrestricted access to the Father so that if Jesus is your high priest, he is constantly in the presence of God and in him we have constant access to God. That's amazing. So why is Jesus the ultimate high priest? First, because he was sinless whereas they were sinful. But a second reason is this, that Jesus' priesthood is eternal and theirs is temporary. One of the liabilities of the, of the Levitical priesthood is that the, those priests had the unfortunate habit of dying, as do all of us. And so what that meant is that there was a constant need for new priests, new priests, New priests, every generation, new priests were in need because, of course, they would die. Jesus, however, is not only fully man, but Jesus is fully God. Jesus' life is eternal. Therefore, he stands as our mediator, not just for a season of time, but Jesus stands as our mediator for all of time. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, we read this. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest for how long? Forever. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, church, I'm going to need you to really, really focus 
for about the next five minutes or this is going to go totally over your head. And it's really, really important. So if you need to, just nudge your neighbor and wake them up right now. I heard about a Sunday school teacher who was walking with her class and she asked, does anybody know why we have to be quiet in church? And the little girl spoke up and said, because people are sleeping. (laughs) Okay, but we need to focus. Because how many of you all have heard of Melchizedek before? We're a well-taught church here. And I take no credit for that. I've only been here for two years. So praise God for everybody who's taught so well here. Okay, let me ask you a different question. How many of us understand who Melchizedek is? A lot less hands here. Some of us are like, I think I do, but I know this is probably a trick question. You're setting us up, so I'm not going to raise my hand. If you don't know, that's okay. I'm going to do my best to explain it to you in about five minutes because this is really important as far as how it relates to the fact that Jesus is an eternal priest. You notice here that the author of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 6, which I just read to you, says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, family, listen, this is a direct quotation from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is extremely significant. In fact, Psalm 110 is quoted more times than any other psalm in the New Testament. And Psalm 110 was written by King David himself, sort of the quintessential king of Israel. And David writes Psalm 110, and it's a royal psalm that prophesies, so it's a a prophetic psalm, it prophesies the ascension and the rule of a future messianic king. What is meant by that is David is prophesying that someday God is going to send a savior, a messiah, but he's going to come as a king. Now, I'm not going to read the whole psalm for us right now, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. This king, David says, is going to come in the power of the Lord. That's verse 2 of Psalm 110. And will establish God's rule throughout the earth. It's verse 5. He will judge the nations in verse 6. He's going to overthrow God's enemies, and he's going to gather God's people to himself. And then, in a particularly striking passage, David even calls this future king, my Lord, in verse 1. And in doing so, he acknowledges the superiority of his royal descendant. He's saying, look, there's going to come this royal king in the future, and I, David, the king, am calling him my Lord. He's going to be superior to me. Now, all of this makes perfect sense if we think of Jesus as the Messiah. Because Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He's perfectly qualified to be a king among the Hebrew people. I want to put a slide on the screen here for us to help show us how this works out. If you know the history of the Hebrew people, Abraham is the father of the faith. Abraham had a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. I'm ignoring 10 of them because I've only put two of them on there for my purposes today. But Jacob has a name change to Israel and he's the father of the Israelites. He has 12 sons which become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, everybody tracking with me so far? So Jacob or Israel has 12 sons. Two of those 12 sons are listed here on the screen, Levi and Judah. Now Judah is the tribe that 
the royal dynasty is going to come from. And Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. That's why he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So in Psalm 110, David is saying there's coming a future Messiah. He's going to be a king. Well, Jesus qualifies. He's of the tribe of Judah. He could potentially be that Messiah. But then smack dab in the middle of this psalm in verse 4, he also says that this future Messiah is not just going to be a king, but he's going to be a priest forever. That's the quote that we read in Hebrews. So the question then becomes, because all of the priests in Israel didn't come from the tribe of Judah, they came from the tribe of Levi. The question becomes, how in the world can Jesus actually be a priest before God if he comes from the tribe of Judah and not Levi? The answer is, he belongs to another priesthood. He belongs to another priesthood. Dr. Stephen Coleman offers some helpful insight here. He says, at the center of this prophecy appears one of the most obscure characters of the Old Testament. David says, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. He goes on to say, Melchizedek appears only one other time in the Old Testament. After Abraham, so go back to the screen here, after Abraham defeated the four kings of the east and he rescued his nephew Lot, he encounters Melchizedek who is identified as the king of Salem and priest of God Most High. This is in Genesis 14. So again, Melchizedek is identified as king of Salem and priest of God Most High. Stephen Coleman goes on to say, David finds in this mysterious character a foreshadowing of the person and work of Jesus Christ as both the great king and the great high priest of his people. So, if you're tracking with this, Abraham, the father of the faith, fights four kings from the east and rescues his nephew Lot. And after he does, this mysterious character appears. Melchizedek, king of Salem and a prophet of God most high. And Abraham significantly offers a tithe, meaning a tenth of his spoils, to this priest that we don't know anything else about. And in doing so, what, what Abraham is saying is that this guy's priesthood is legitimate and this guy is superior. I'm giving tribute of all of my spoil to this Melchizedek. Now, within the Levitical priesthood, genealogy meant everything. Because you had to be able to track that I am actually of the tribe of Levi in order to be a priest. But check this out. Melchizedek has no genealogy in the scriptures. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. He's mysterious. He just shows up in Genesis chapter 14. But the author of Hebrews is going to note that the presentation of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 lends an eternal quality to him, a quality that foreshadows the eternal character of Jesus' high priesthood. So, if some of that went over your head, here's the important thing you need to know. The Jewish priesthood and priests were temporary. They began under Moses long after the history of Israel continues on the screen there. So it began then and their priests were temporary. But Jesus does not belong to that priesthood. Jesus boasts of an indestructible life and Jesus belongs to an eternal priestly order. 
He is of the order of Melchizedek, and he's a priest forever before God. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of David's amazing prophecy in Psalm 110, where David predicts the coming of one of his descendants who would sit on his throne and rule God's people and save God's people as a king and a priest forever. It's amazing. So, moving into our final point then. Why is Jesus the ultimate high priest? Well, as we've seen, because he was sinless, whereas every other priest was sinful. And his priesthood is of an eternal priestly order, whereas all of theirs were temporary. Third and finally, why is Jesus the ultimate high priest? The answer is because he offered a superior sacrifice. He offered a superior sacrifice. Every other priest who served before God, they offered sacrifices, but they offered something else as a sacrifice. They offered an animal as a substitute for the sins of the people. Jesus, in contrast to that, as he comes to offer a sacrifice for our sins, he doesn't offer something else, he offers himself. So that Jesus is unique, to say the least, among all of the priests that have ever served before the Lord, in that Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. That's amazing. So he's the high priest and he's the sacrifice that actually pays for our sins. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming in John 1.29, said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb that's going to be slain and actually take away the sin of the world. And again, in Hebrews 1.3, we read that he made purification for sins. And church, this is such good news for us because the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats, could never atone for our sins. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a gifted Bible commentator and pastor of the last century, points out the two problems with the sacrifices under the Old Testament. The first problem is that they were inadequate. Sure, they taught the way of salvation through the death of an innocent victim. But again, the, the sacrifice of animals could never take away our sins. And this truth is attested to in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Consider Micah chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 in the Old Testament. The prophet asks, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So he's asking rhetorical questions. Is that what makes God happy? If we just slaughter tons and tons of animals, or if I, if I, I give my, my kids over as a sacrifice, is that what God's looking for? Then in verse 8 he says, No, he has told you, O man. What is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And then in the New Testament, we see this truth confirmed. Here's Hebrews 10, 4 through 7. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So what we see there is that the work 
of the priest in the Old Testament was insufficient for our need. We needed a high priest who could come and offer a sacrifice that could actually take away our sin, not just cover it, remove it from us for all time. So, the first problem is that their sacrifices were inadequate. The second problem is that they were incomplete. We know this is the case because guess what? They offered sacrifices over and over and over and over again. You sin again, you sacrifice again. You sin again, you sacrifice again. These sacrifices are incomplete. And herein lies the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus only offered his sacrifice once. And when he laid down his life for you on the cross 2,000 years ago, it actually has the power to remove your sin forever. Hebrews 10 verses 11 through 14 explain this to us. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, and because Jesus lived a truly righteous life, he and he alone is uniquely qualified to be the substitute for our sins. In his person alone, deity and humanity could unite in perfect holiness. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we take great comfort in this. Because what this means is that if you've put your faith in Jesus, all of your sin, your past sin, and check this out, even your future sin, has been paid for by Jesus Christ. He is never going to a cross again. He is never going to die again for your sins. When he died on the cross 2,000 years ago and declared, it is finished, he meant it. It is finished. Your sin has been paid for. Now, in the Jewish temple, you may not know this, but there were no chairs. None. And that was important. There were no chairs in the temple because that signified the fact that the work of the priests was never finished. Again, sacrifices were being offered over and over and over again. But what did we just read about Jesus? That when Jesus made his sacrifice, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he immediately went to heaven, he ascended to heaven, and he was seated at the right hand of the Father, making a declaration for all time that it is truly finished. I'm done. My work in paying for your sins is complete. It happened through my death and resurrection and never needs to be repeated. It's amazing. Well, as we close this morning, I don't want you to get the idea from what I just said that because there's never going to be another sacrifice that our high priest needs to make that he's done being your high priest. Remember, he is a high priest forever, we read, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the question becomes, what is Jesus doing right now as your high priest? The answer is this. First, he's interceding for us. He's interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is interceding for you right now and he ever lives to make intercession for you. We see a great example of this even in the earthly ministry of Jesus with one of his disciples, Peter. In Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Can you imagine if Jesus said that to you? Hey, Satan asked for you by name. He wants to sift you like wheat. I know a chill would go down my spine. But he says this to Peter. How shocking, how terrifying. But the very next verse, Jesus says, But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Then here's Peter in his typical bravado. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Peter's like, Lord, you can count on me. I'm your dude. Like, I, I'm, gonna, I'm in it to win it. I'm in it to the end. And Jesus is like, actually, the truth is, you're not even going to make it through the night. Reminds me of a story that I've told you before of when I was in elementary school. I got myself in some trouble. There was a girl who really, really liked me, kind of stalked me. Why are you guys laughing? Why is that so unbelievable that a girl liked me? I used to be handsome when I was younger. So she would kind of stalk me around school with her friends and I kind of got tired of it. And she was in the library this one day and she sort of appeared and I was like, like, what is she doing here? So I looked at her and I said, I wish you were a big bug so I could step on you and squish you. She walked away just dejected looking. And right when I said it, I was like, I probably shouldn't have said that. Well, we go back to class and I'm sitting in class and my teacher and I was like, I was a good kid in school. I just had the fear of God in me at that age and I just wanted to be the best student. So when my teacher called me outside of the portable to talk to me, I was terrified. And she goes, hey, so-and-so said that you said this to her. Is that true? I looked at her and in all of my godliness, I said, nope. And I lied to my teacher and she believed me and didn't believe the girl. It's terrible. But of course, I didn't know if she was going to ultimately believe me. So I went back to my seat and I prayed a prayer before God. And my prayer went like this. With all of the bravado of Peter, Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I will never sin again. And Jesus probably looked at me the same way he looked at Peter and said, before you even wake up tomorrow, <laughs> you're going to fail. You're going to sin. You're going to blow it. But the important thing was not Peter's failure. It was Jesus' prayers. Because the prayers of Christ ultimately proved to be effectual on Peter's behalf. Yes, he face-planted that night. But ultimately, he was restored and he became one of the most powerful leaders of the early church. And we know how my story turned out. I no longer ever want to crush any women under my feet like bugs anymore. Jesus is interceding for us. He's bringing our needs before the Father. Father, In Peter's great hour of temptation, Jesus was interceding for him and enabling him to prevail. Hebrews 2.18 tells us, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus stands as your high priest to help you in your temptation and to strengthen your faith. 
1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Jesus is helping us to resist temptation. He's helping us to grow in godliness. And listen, when we fail, Jesus is not only our intercessor, but he's our advocate. And he advocates for us. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word advocate, the closest thing we would have in our culture is a defense attorney, a lawyer. And what 1 John is saying is, listen, if you do sin, God forbid you do, but if you do, he's saying, guess what? You have an advocate. Jesus stands in the presence of the Father every single day to declare in the eternal courtroom of heaven your innocence despite your sin. Not because you're innocent in and of yourself, but because if you've put your faith in Christ, Jesus is over and over again every time you sin. And the accuser of the brethren, Satan, is saying, see, they're not righteous. See, they don't deserve to go to heaven. Jesus stands up for you. And he once again presents the evidence of his, of his sacrifice 2,000 years ago and says, they're innocent. It's paid for. It's nothing left to be judged. He's your advocate in heaven. How wonderful. So this brings us to probably one of the most quoted verses in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, or boldness, some of your translations might say, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Family, this Christmas season, as we're thinking about the love of God for us, and we're thinking about the work of Christ as he came to this earth 2,000 years ago, we have to keep in our minds the fact that Jesus is our high priest, and because of him, we now have access to God constantly and continually. God is not mad at us over our sin. It's been dealt with, and Jesus stands interceding for us day after day, empowering us to live the Christian life through the Holy Spirit and presenting the evidence of your innocence before the Father every single time you sin. Is he not worthy of our worship? Is he not worthy of our praise? Is he not worthy of our devotion, not just at Christmas time, but all year around for the rest of our lives? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know the word gospel means good news. And every single time we open your word together as a church family and we retell the story of what you've done for us, we're reminded that this is, in fact, good news, the greatest news that the world has ever received. Sure, it's a message that has some bumps in the road. It's a message that tells us about our sinfulness and the destructiveness and seriousness of our sin the way that it alienates us from you, the way that it alienates us from one another 
and wreaks havoc on everything that is good and beautiful and perfect. But Lord, the story continues. The good news comes because 2,000 years ago, because of the great love that you have for us, you sent your one and only Son, Christ the Lord, born of the Virgin, to live the life that we could not live and to ultimately lay it down as the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for our sins and then to take it up again so that he could ascend to heaven and ever live to make intercession for us, to be our high priest for all of eternity. What amazing news, Lord. We thank you for the teaching of your word this morning. We thank you for the message of Christmas. And Lord, we pray like Mary, we would treasure these things in our hearts and that they would cause us to worship not only today, not only in the next couple of days as we anticipate Christmas, but as I mentioned a moment ago, that these things would cause us to worship you for all of time. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Let's stand to our feet and let's worship him because he's worthy. Amen.